welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. We seek an order of things in which all the base and cruel passions are enchained, all the beneficent and generous passions are awakened by the laws, where ambition becomes the desire to merit glory and to serve our country, where distinctions are born only of equality itself, where the citizen is subject to the magistrate, the magistrate to the people, and the people to justice, where our country assures the well-being of each individual, and where each individual proudly enjoys our country's prosperity and glory. These are the words of Maximilian Robespierre, de- de- delivered on 5th February 1794, and it all sounds very good if you're not a monarchist. Yet later in this speech, sometimes labeled on political virtue, Robespierre also makes his clearest call for terror as the means with which to save the future of the Republic from enemies within as well as, well as those without. In the end, Robespierre himself would be identified as one of those internal enemies and be eliminated. This is the subject of Colin Jones' new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary France. It is an hour-by-hour, sometimes minute-by-minute chronicle of Robespierre's last full day, but it is much more than just a chronicle of Robespierre. It is a day in the life of the French Revolution, one of the most important days in the life of the French Revolution, in which not only Robespierre crosses the stage, the crowded stage, but journalists the public executioner, shopkeepers, laborers, and all the faces of the crowd. Colin Jones is professor of history at Queen Mary University of London, a fellow of the British Academy, past president of the Royal Historical Society, and currently a visiting professor at the University of Chicago. Among his previous books is The Smile Revolution in 18th Century Paris. Yes, even smiles have a history. Colin Jones, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Well, I'm, uh, I was delighted to see this when this book came out because I'm a, a great admirer of the Smile Revolution, um, and, and in fact, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite parts of this book is when you describe the smiles of those going to the guillotine, uh, which we'll get to in just a second, I think. Um, but how are you able to do this? This is, as I said in the intro, it's a minute to minute, certainly hour to hour chronicle of Robespierre's last day of Ninth Thermidor, right? Um, What's the challenge of it? It's a, it's, a, it's a big challenge, actually. It's a big challenge for me. Um, I mean, I think we as historians, we're obviously used to telling uh, stories, but we usually tell big stories in big ways, in macro ways. And this is a very micro book. You know, it is a big book and it's on 24 hours, um, only 24 hours. So that, that implies a different sort of uh, approach, I think. I mean, clearly, some of it is just the same as ever. It's uh, you collect a lot of data and you manage it and you try and put it into some sort of shape. I should say that we are very lucky for that day and having an enormous amount of um, uh, material to work on, which allows this kind of very micro approach. But then really, it's uh, telling a story more like more like in some ways fiction, you know, or a story that you tell friends where you have to think about pacing, you have to think about introducing characters about thinking about how much background people need to understand what the action is and you have to think about the drama and i wanted to make it a drama but in some ways that is the easy thing because it is a very very dramatic day which with all the uh, the swings one way or another of a very uh, very sort of uh, 
uh, exciting and dramatic uh, uh, a few hours, 24 hours. Uh, are, are you going against a sort of long training uh, by writing this? I mean, writing this kind of book, um, this sort of twenty-four hour story of what happens in that moment. This is not exactly the long durée. Um, and you know, I was raised to think the only kind of good durée is a long durée. Um, yeah, that you're very interesting. You say that because honestly, that's tended to be my career uh, in that uh, I've written the history of France. I've written the history of. Uh, Paris in the very long durée, uh, my approach to the 18th century and the French Revolution has tended to put the long durée at the uh, the heart of what I do. So this was a challenge for me, really, to really think small, to think, uh, think micro rather than uh, uh, macro. But I think also one of the things which I was trying to do with this was was sprang from an awareness of um, the you know, one of the, the the issues arising out of a long durée approach, which is that when you get to a day like this, which everyone accepts is, you know, really important day in the history of the French Revolution, you tend to, to approach it in a way which squashes or squeezes out the drama and the uncertainties of the day. You know, you, you start yeah. with the context and you start with the causes, you start with the preconditions and then you get to the triggers for action and everything like that. And of course, you then afterwards have to think about the aftermath and the consequences and the results and everything like that. The result is it's rather like a really bad sandwich. You know, you've got two chunks mm. of bread each side and in the middle, the dayness, the dayitude in some ways, the dayiness <laughs> of the day gets squashed and gets lost. And I wanted to re redress that balance. If I could give you an example from uh, French history, although it's very different, and I'm not in any way saying that uh, Maximilien Robespierre was like uh, Donald Trump, but when, when, when we write, as we will be writing as historians, the history of the 6th of January uh, uh, events, you know, to do that in a way which squeezes out the sort of uncertainty and the, uh, the dramas which everyone was uh, feeling, both uh, obviously in uh, there on the spot, but also through the uh, media, would be really a, a disservice to understanding what was going on and its importance. So I was trying to get that sense of, of dayness into a study of the of the day and to put my long durée uh, credentials uh, to, to one side for, for, for a little while. And, and yet it's also not... Um... It's not a microhistory like Return of Martin Gare or Cheese and the Worms. Um, those are sort of everyday lives, basically seen in court cases. This is lots of lives all crowded together. And we'll, we'll get to the difficulties of constructing this. But there's an amazing cast of characters. We're going to talk a lot about Robespierre because this is uh, probably for, for most listeners, the easiest way in is to talk about Robespierre. But this is not just about Robespierre. No, I think, I mean, I mean clearly, uh, you read the uh, what's on the tin, it says the fall of Robespierre, and that clearly <laughs> is what it's about. But but actually, I, for me, there are two major protagonists uh, uh, in this, and one is uh, Robespierre, and one is the people of Paris. And I, what I wanted to tell it as is a story of, uh, of Parisians, uh, a day in the life of uh, Parisians. In some ways, microhistory, as you say, tends to uh, restrict itself to... Um, uh, to the an individual uh, uh, or whatever. I was trying to tell a microhistory of a city with half a million uh, people. So you yeah, have to start yeah. looking for representative figures, uh, uh, stories that are going to um, uh, uh, stand in for and explain uh, behave, collective uh, behavior uh, as well. Well, let's deal with the, as you nicely say, the, the, the cover of the tin. Um, who was Maximilian Robespierre? 
prior yes, to 1789. Well, he, was, uh, he had been a very, very insignificant, uh, you know, interesting in his own way, but uh, not a, a stand-up figure uh, at all uh, before 1789. Uh, he was uh, originally from Arras, uh, a town in the, near the Belgian uh, border. He came to Paris to be educated. He trained as a lawyer. He, he practiced as a lawyer in Arras before the revolution. And he was um, well enough known locally to get himself elected to the National Assembly, to the States General, which became the new National Assembly in 1789. And in 1789, he seized the opportunity from this very, very undistinguished background, uh, uh, really. He, he, he made himself prominent, really, by being the most consistent and probably one of the most eloquent and radical voices supporting the popular cause. Uh, and that, you know, he's always sticking up for the people, that he's always looking uh, to explain the behavior of the people in ways of, uh, of injustice or inequalities which they face. And he also develops a career as a, uh, a whistleblower. You know, he's calling out uh, mis injustices and misjudgments of one sort or another on the part of the ruling elite or, or the local government or, or, or the, the, the law courts or, or whatever. And from that, he, get, he becomes, and it's very interesting, there's been some interesting work done on this in recent years, on the culture of celebrity, which is emerging at this time. He becomes a celebrity. So people really warm to him and feel affection for him, sometimes hatred for him, um, uh, even though they've met, never met him and they, they feel a sort of sense of intimacy. And so he establishes this very uh, big reputation on the basis, really, of not actually doing very much, of being a voice. In 1791, uh, they, they change, they, they introduce a constitution, and he steps down from the legislature. He could have just gone back to Arras to become a lawyer. He actually gets a post. Uh, uh, he is, he's elected to a post as a, a, a magistrate in nearby Versailles. But he gives that up and he decides he wants to stay in uh, uh, Paris. Uh, he commits to journalism. He commits to the popular cause. And one of the things he does in those years, 91, 92, is become very much more closely associated with the people of Paris. Uh, the, he's been a distant figure if you in some ways. And he is, in, he, in many ways, he continues as a distant figure. He's not a, a popular figure who'll go around shaking hundreds of hands and kissing uh, thousands of babies. You know, he's, he's rather remote. Uh, unlike some politicians, he doesn't dress in a popular way. He dresses in the old style way. He powders his hair. He wears knee breeches, smart coats, uh, frock coats, etc., etc. But he does associate himself and becomes familiar with and in some ways shifts his power base away from the National Assembly and the friendship groups and political uh, alliances which he has there to the people of Paris. And this is a time when the uh, popular movement, as it's called, the people of Paris are really developing as a political actor. They have their own clubs, their own society, the so-called so sans-culottes. And in 1792, particularly over the war, and the, which France goes to against uh, uh, the whole of Europe in 1792 to 93, and the overthrow of the uh, king in late 1792, he comes to develop a very powerful base in, the, in, in Paris. And when he's re-elected to the new assembly, the National Convention, which is established in uh, late 1792 after the king has been uh, overthrown, although he is just a normal MP, his voice has tremendous resonance because people know that he has the support of, and sometimes the, the violent support if necessary, of the people of Paris. So people listen to him. 
1793, when actually the, you know, the revolution is at a terrible position in, in military terms, the civil war, uh, foreign wars going terribly, uh, he enters the, 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 it's essentially a war government, a war cabinet, the Committee of Public Safety, which uh, uh, runs France. It uh, runs the war and it runs inside a revol so-called revolutionary government, which introduces ra socially radical policies, but also is not afraid of repression. And it's uh, repression terror, uh, which he acts as in some ways the spokesman for the uh, uh, spokesman for revolutionary government, uh, the ideologists of, uh, of, of uh, not just virtue, political virtue and equality, but also of terror. So let, I want to pursue a few uh, uh, things that you uh, dropped along the way there. Um, what sort of celebrity did he have? What what was the personality uh, with whom people imagine they could be intimate? If that's what sort of celebrity Do is. you mean his his own personality? Yeah, exactly. What was being presented of him in the in the press? Uh, Either yes, by himself uh, or by he, his supporters. He's seen really as um, the, the, the term that sticks to him very early, actually, 1779 is the incorruptible. Although he and other people on the, on the left are criticizing the uh, government for not being radical enough and indeed being personally uh, corrupt, he is someone who steps aside, who is very altruistic. He presents himself as very uh, altruistic, very much on a higher moral plane. Uh, than most uh, politicians. People like that. You know, he's Mr. Honest uh, uh, French Revolution. One of the things which is very striking about him, and you see this when you when you look at his speeches, as you did uh, earlier, uh, but it comes out even more forcefully sometimes, is that he identifies himself with the revolution in a very, very striking and sometimes very melodramatic way. Um, uh, he, he sees himself as the embodiment of change and the embodiment of a determination to change society in a way that's going to produce a, a human collective uh, uh, happiness. And he does that by emphasizing, as I said before, the importance of the people, the just common people of uh, France. Um, and he sees them as in some ways the virtuous center of, of everything that he does. But he himself sees himself as part of the people. Although, as I say, he has a very a classically, you would say, bourgeois, upper middle class uh, 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 lawyer uh, background and practice. Uh, he at one stage says, je suis peuple. Oh, he says that on a couple of times, occasions, actually. I am of the people. I embody the people. I stand for the people uh, in some ways. So you get the sense of um, real commitment, uh, personal commitment uh, on his, uh, uh, in his view of the a revolution. I think that comes through and people see him and admire him uh, 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 or, or sometimes hate him, but admire him for those sort of personal commitments. Well, to, to paraphrase you earlier, I don't want to compare Maximilian Robespierre to Abraham Lincoln, uh, but there are some really interesting similarities, I think, not just between Robespierre and Lincoln, but between other important politicians of that century that in many ways the French Revolution inaugurated, or perhaps the age revolutions inaugurated. Um, men, provincial lawyers, uh, known for their being of the people, uh, known for their incorruptibility, honest Abe, um, Robespierre the Incorruptible, uh, who whose administrative experience is approximately nil uh, in both cases and in many other cases. 
and and whose power comes from oratory. Uh, they they're deriving their power from their ability to make a speech and to set forth some ideas. Some I will say now. Here's the difference: some very different ideas often. Uh, but the power to set forth ideas is the from where they derive their political power. Yes, it, absolutely. It's his his speaking, really. I mean, when he gets into government in the middle of 1793, it's clear he's never really managed anything. He's never he's not been one of these guys who's on committees or runs things or anything like that. And here he is suddenly elevated to uh, the committee which is running uh, France. He does do some of that. He does chip in as a collective of 12 people on the uh, uh, committee. But his um, fellow uh, members, his colleagues on the committee soon realize that it's his voice which is the big thing. And they they, uh, allow him to or maybe even wheel him out sometimes into the uh, uh, (laughs) National Assembly to make the really big keynote speeches about where the revolution is going, why to support it, why why it um, uh, um, requires people to make the sort of sacrifices which they're making to fight the war and to win the uh, revolution, and why terror has to be accepted, why you know violence against the enemies of the uh, people, uh, the enemies of France, has to be embraced as well. And so he's the, as I say, the ideologist and the spokesman for the Committee of, the, of, of uh, uh, Public Safety, perhaps more than the, uh, the active uh, participant in much of the sort of hard grind of office work and uh, um, executive decision-making uh, that goes on around the table. So that, that's um, very important since, um, as you make clear, um, lots of his colleagues on the committee were able to hide behind him after his execution. And um, you know, I, I took a class in the French Revolution from uh, one of the great um, American historians of the French Revolution and Revolutionary France. And I think I might, if you'd pressed me in a, in a test before I read your book, I might have thought of him as a dictator. Uh, but he's not a dictator. He's, a, he's the public spokesman. He's the press secretary. He's yeah, the, the, the word dictator the is something which is banded around, even from quite early on in his uh, his life, he's, uh, his enemies see this um, this uh, uh, emphasis on sincerity and incorruptibility as quite honestly a performance, a bit of a pose. Uh, yeah. And they suspect him of hypocrisy and that really what he's out for is to get rid of people in power. So not that, um, you know, he'll, there'll be a sort of selfless government of the people, but that he will actually be running uh, the, the, the show in some ways. So, I mean, in... Many, many ways you see uh, Robespierre's commitment to the idea of um, parliamentary um, uh, democracy. It's very strong. He, he, you know, he speaks in the convention all the time. But in some ways, the people trumps the representatives of the people, if you like. That, in other words, mm-hmm. when the the, the, uh, the convention, when the elected assembly is acting in a way which. Um, he feels is going against the interests of the people. He thinks he should be able to step in to it, to, uh, to point out the situation to the people and to look to the people to take action. It's quite interesting. You know, he's, he's involved in quite a few um, run-ups to uh, days of um, action, days of violence in the French Revolution. But as I was saying before, really, he's never involved in actually running a revolution or a revolt or a riot or anything like that. But he presents the arguments, uh, if you like. And I think that's what's going on before the uh, 27th of July, the 9th of uh, Thermidor. 
he's essentially thinking that government is becoming too corrupt, that uh, even his colleagues in the Committee of Public Safety uh, are, are, have moved beyond uh, their patriotism towards corruptibility, if you like. Uh, and he's yeah. pointing out to the people that this is the situation and, and sort of expecting them to do something about it while not actually organizing his own power. He's someone who does that. have a lot of people in posts uh, around uh, Paris and in uh, national government who he's put there. But he doesn't really act like a patron or a dictator in cultivating relationships which will uh, allow him to seize uh, personal power. So uh, both at the time, often co 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 covertly and uh, uh, quietly rather than uh, shouting from the loud, loud, uh, rooftops, People are thinking, you know, that he has the potential to be a dictator. It will become, of course, the main one of the main charges against him after he's overthrown. That that's what he's been up to all along. He's been just trying to uh, establish himself as a dictator for France. So is this fear, which then becomes fact afterwards, is this the fear of Robespierre as a dictator? What leads people to, uh, what makes him vulnerable? Uh, is because because uh, as you describe him, mean, these they're not patronage, but he has he, these connections. He has his people are everywhere in the National Guard and all, and and he has, as it were, a direct line to the people of Paris. So, how does this figure this the incorruptible? How does he become vulnerable? It's a it's a very interesting uh, point, actually, and one of the things which really um, uh, motivated me to tell the uh, story, but. You know, quite honestly, if, you, if you're if looking at the situation on the morning of the uh, 9th of uh, Thermidor, the day in which he was overthrown, if you'd known that there was going to be an attempt uh, to remove him from government and to arrest him and uh, uh, put him in prison, probably send him to the Revolutionary Tribunal, where he'd almost certainly gone to the guillotine, or not, or whether he would have won or not, you'd probably have put money on him, him actually winning, you know, because he had so many... Uh, uh, potential influences. Uh, he, as you said, had the commander of the National Guard, uh, the, uh, the, the, the senior magistrate at the Revolutionary Tribunal, uh, the mayor of Paris was his nominee, so was his second-in-command, the so-called national agent. He is very widely reputed to be very popular in the sections of Paris, the neighborhood administrative uh, sections. You know, he seems to have everything going for him. And in some ways, it's out of desperation on the night of 8th and 9th of Thermidor that his uh, colleagues in the, um, in the uh, Committee of Public Safety suddenly realize because of the speech he's given the previous day where he's threatened violence against anyone who's uh, uh, against him, really. They've got to do something about it. But still, they're very, very nervous about actually grasping the nettle uh, 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 the next day, and it really only happens all—I won't say by accident, but uh, but certainly it is not planned. And one of the things I really wanted to show was the uh, the way in which the day suddenly happens. It sort of springs out of nothing, and suddenly it's it's going full tilt, and all predictions are off, all uh, all bets are off, if you like, and one's in a totally different situation. What I think. The other side of the story, which is the question that you ask, is that yeah. he is very, very worried about his own safety. He has developed a theories over the previous six, eight, nine, nine months that the government of England has essentially selected assassination of people in France, uh, political leaders such as himself, as the, as the what, what as their policy. 
and he feels under threat. Uh, he feels um, people sometimes go on about Robespierre being uh, uh, being paranoid. I, I personally don't like using clinical uh, categories uh, retrospectively like that. But certainly he's very, very nervous. And indeed, there are one one big attempt uh, on his life, which isn't, you know, someone who turns a little a girl actually turns up at his uh, uh, dwelling uh, with knives and talking about she wants to see the dictator. Uh, there's another couple of events as well, which are, are similar uh, in some ways. So he does feel genuinely under threat and he feels that maybe the English government has suborned his uh, colleagues and members of the convention as well uh, to basically get rid of him. And he, he distances himself from politics uh, in the last six or eight weeks before, six or eight weeks before the 9th of Thermidor. Doesn't show up at the convention, the National Assembly, doesn't show up at the Committee of uh, Public Safety. Stays in his lodgings. He lives in a sort of family lodgings with a, uh, a master cabinet uh, maker near to the National Assembly. And um, anyone coming to visit him is very carefully uh, screened. So he's got this sort of sense of vulnerability, <laughs> strangely enough, given that his enemies uh, are thinking, well, you know, this is someone who is almost invulnerable. They can't imagine quite how they're going to get rid of him. Oh. That sense of vulnerability is not towards his colleagues on the committee. It's towards external enemies. Yes, but he he also uh, is saying, for the six or eight weeks before, he's, as I say, he hasn't showed up at the National Assembly. He doesn't show up at the Committee of Public Safety. But he goes probably twice or three times a week to the Jacobin Club, which is the great um, political association and talking shop for the revolution. And he and his uh, colleague on the committee, a man called Couton, make very violent attacks on the government for taking the wrong, uh, wrong direction. And to be fair to his colleagues, they take this in their stride for quite a lot of the time. They think, well, this is Robespierre sounding off, you know, and uh, what can we do about it? Uh, but by the end, because uh, he, on the night of 8th and 9th of Thermidor, has uh, effectively personalized the, his attacks in ways which his colleagues on the Committee of Public Safety feel personally under threat, they then switch. They switch to him, they turn against him, even though they're not quite sure how they're going to overthrow him because he seems so very powerful. So... <clears throat> this is a um, this day is an inflection point in the French Revolution, which means it's an inflection point in the history of France and, the, and the, really in the modern world. What are some of the inflection points? Let's just name three or four that occurred during the day, if we can move forward briskly towards sort of just towards the end of our conversation. Yes, yeah. yeah, certainly. I mean, I think um, in some ways it's a, a tragedy. Uh, that, you, know, you may think the term is undeserved for someone like Robespierre, if you're one of his um, opponents or critics, but uh, certainly someone in very high estate who falls in a day and all the action is like Aristotle would have wanted within the one place, <laughs> unity of the place, space and action, uh, essentially. Overnight, I mean, uh, from midnight onwards, the Committee of Public Safety is meeting and suddenly realizing the situation that they're facing. And some of the people in the convention are realizing that they'll have to act as well. And in particular, one of, one person I really highlight is a man called uh, Talian. And Talian, it, we know that Robespierre hates his guts. He, he really has attacked him for his um, action uh, when in provincial France, uh, putting down a rebellion in provincial France. He thinks he's personally uh, corrupt. Uh, and he basically starts going around his colleagues and said, 
saying to them, well, you heard Robespierre in the convention yesterday attacking all and sundry. You know, he's lost it. He's basically going to attack everyone. Well, you, you, no one is safe. And people who otherwise would have been rather resistant to support Talian, who's sort of a bit of a left-wing uh, maverick, basically think that, you know, this is an issue. So you've got a sort of setting up of um, opposition in the night. And then really you go into the next day and the next real key inflection point is absolutely just a midday, in fact, when the official business of the National Convention happens. Robespierre has come in. He's had a normal day. He hasn't been doing anything. He's been sleeping. He hasn't been organizing insurrection or anything like that, talking to the mm. National Guard. He's just been you know, doing his normal stuff, having his cup of coffee in the morning. We know that. Uh, he comes into the National Assembly and his colleague Saint-Just is down to get, give a speech. Saint-Just starts uh, to speak uh, in a very high-flown way. But before he gets even two or three minutes into it, Talia marches in to the uh, uh, assembly and calls him out and say, we've had enough of this. We had one deputy uh, you know, going on yesterday. Now we've got a, his colleague attacking the uh, government. I say they're conspiring against the government. And he had set up, you know, the small, small number of people had seen the previous day uh, had agreed that they would support him. So everyone, they clap very loudly. And suddenly you get Robespierre is completely taken by surprise, but so is everyone else in some ways. And Talian, as Talian goes on and launches his attack, suddenly people in the assembly are full, get fully behind him. Suddenly the applause goes completely for him. Public galleries, which normally support Robespierre, are silent and sort of rather astonished about it all. And you see what you see in the day, in the next couple of hours, is the government sort of improvising the overthrow of uh, one of their one of their, their deputies and one of their members of the uh, government. And from about three or four o'clock, they put, placed him under arrest uh, and um, they make a decision to send each, he and his brother and a couple of others, five of them in all, to be sent to prisons throughout Paris. They then break and they think, well, we've done it. It's a parliamentary coup. We've, we've overthrown Robespierre. We can get on with normal government in some ways and get rid of this uh, person who's been making up all our lives difficult, at least on the Committee of Public Safety, for the last uh, month or, 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 or two. And they go off and have dinner. But that late afternoon, this is the second point, I would say, the um, people, the commune, that is the municipal government of uh, Paris, which meets at the Hôtel de Ville, probably about two, two kilometers away from the National Assembly, which is near to the Louvre, uh, hears news of what's happened. And they make a very swift decision to, together with the National Guard to mobilize the city of Paris, uh, the National Guard, and to go and protest and uh, uh, you know, try and reinstate Robespierre in power in the National Assembly. And for, in the early part of the evening, uh, the commune is mobilizing, sending out messages, sending out uh, uh, messengers across Paris, um, mobilize the National Guard, bring cannon to the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville, the, the, place, uh, the uh, big square in front of the Hôtel de Ville, uh, and will get ready to sort of take the action to the uh, National Assembly. And indeed, at, at about eight, between eight and nine o'clock, uh, a big force, thousands of men and lots of cannon do actually move towards the National Assembly. And that what they're trying to do actually is to release um, Robespierre. They think he's still in prison there, but in fact, he's been sent Sent, uh, sent away from there. But then they go back, maybe it's a mistake, they go back to the Place de la Commune and carry on with the mobilization. 
So you've got suddenly the tables are turned and the tables are turned to what's possibly even more decisively, but certainly significantly, because Robespierre, when he gets to prison, the jailers refuse to take him in. Maybe it's uh, partly because they were frightened of uh, the, the authority, which he's always had. <laughs> so you've got this man that, who's been arrested on the loose in Paris. Uh, and um, in fact, the police administration of the commune uh, take him in. That's on the Ile de la Cité in the middle of uh, Paris. So you've got a situation when the, when the evening session of the National Assembly meets, they are absolutely astonished to find that action which they thought was complete is now back in, you know, back in uh, gestation and they're facing a possible popular uh, uh, revolution. And indeed, at nine o'clock, they come close to being invaded by these forces coming to rescue uh, Robespierre. Um, it's at that moment, and this is one of, you know, the two moments around nine o'clock in the evening, which I think is re are really significant. One of them is in the National Assembly and it's basically the decision uh, by the National Assembly to declare anyone supporting Robespierre and the Commune uh, as uh, not obeying the convention uh, on this day as outlaws. If you're an outlaw, you, you can be, you don't have a legal, you lose all legal rights. You can be, just be identified and executed uh, essentially. Uh, and news of, um, of that gets out. And the other thing that they do at that time is that they appoint that their own, one of their own members, Barras, a man called Barras, and he has 12 uh, adjuncts as well from the assembly. And they dress these guys up in, you know, tricolor sashes, great big tricolor plumes, you know, the official uniform of the deputy. And they put them on horses uh, and they send them round the sections of Paris saying, you know, Paris is under threat, the revolution is under threat. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got to support the convention against the Robespierre. So you've got then, this is the second uh, point I'd make at this point about nine o'clock, you've got the narrative of the convention being sent out across Paris in this way that proves to be very, very effective. And the other, the other sort of place where I think the action is really, you know, inflected massively is absolutely in front of the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville. You know, this is all the people who've been mobilized by the commune. They've been over, many of them, to the convention. They've come back. They honestly don't know what the heck is going on. They're getting reports from the commune one way, and then suddenly they're getting stories from the uh, National Convention as well. And this is what, for me, is one of the big stories of the day. It is that basically Parisians have a choice that day. Uh, that Do they choose supporting the convention, National Assembly, chosen by universal male uh, suffrage, first time in uh, history, and, uh, and the principles of law and order, or do they support Robespierre, the commune, the municipal rather than the national government, uh, a man who's been a great patriot in the past, but seems to be determined to take the revolution who knows where, and maybe even Robespierre doesn't quite know where they, where they are. And so they essentially, you find this movement, which is quite rapid, actually, over the next few hours, uh, a movement away from the national, uh, uh, from the support for the commune and Robespierre to support from the National Assembly. When I was looking at the documentation, this did strike me very, very forcefully. And it struck me particularly forcefully because most historians have always said, well, you know, by late evening, people have given up and they've all gone home, you know, and they, they you know, don't want any more political involvement uh, with the revolution for and against. They're indifferent and apathetic about the political process. 
What I discovered was that far from that, they, well, some of them may go home and go to bed and uh, pull the covers up over their heads, but most don't actually. They stay on the streets and they switch sides and they switch against uh, uh, Robespierre and the Commune um, and uh, support the National Convention and join the National Guard force, which the Convention has put together and which uh, from around midnight starts marching on the uh, on the on the uh, commune and the hotel de ville at midnight you know an hour after a, a day a full day 24 hours after he's been considering what his options were uh, for the next day robespierre is there by then in the hotel de ville uh, himself with the, with the sort of committee of the uh, of the commune uh, trying to desperately Remobilize the people of Paris who are drifting away, and I think he must then get a sense that the day everything was up, the day was over for for him. And sh sure enough, around two o'clock, the, the National Guardsmen from the Convention's forces arrive at the Place. They find it just about completely deserted. They go up the stairs and they make their arrests, and the day is over. And uh, somehow, Robespierre is shot in the jaw. Yeah, and it's, you know, I leave it up in the air because, quite honestly, I think <laughs> there's certainly another story, maybe even another book in it, but historians are never quite sure one way or the other. Did he try and commit suicide? Was he shot in the melee uh, after the event? Actually, on the on the night later that night, early in the morning of the 10th of Thermidor, in the National Assembly, one of the uh, men who was there in the uh, in the room with uh, when they captured uh, Robespierre say this this stout sturdy uh, not national guardsman by by my side it's fired the shot honestly historians are completely all over the place on this so it's very very un unclear um what happens is that we know that he um he is shot in the cheek uh, on the left hand side and the bullet enters uh, his mouth and breaks much of uh, part of his uh, jaw takes out a, 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 lot of the, a lot of the teeth whether he could have shot himself left-handed uh, at that angle, or whether this man was just making, this um, National Guardsman was just making up a story, or whether it was a sort of tussle and the gun went off and he got injured. But it really, really is important because uh, it means that um, Robespierre is not only an outlaw, but he's a voiceless outlaw. He can't speak. Hmm. Uh, in fact, in the night, people say, uh, the next morning, he tries desperately to get pen and ink to just put his ideas on paper. But you've got a situation where this man who has been the voice of revolutionary government, the voice of terror, completely without a voice. They silenced him on the night of, uh, on the day of the night of uh, Thermidor, not allowing him to speak in the National Assembly. Uh, by, by, the, by the night of the 9th and 10th, he has no voice. He's, he's shot himself in a way that he can't, uh, he, he, he can't speak. And, and what, uh, when is he executed? Uh, the, what they do is they 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 get they line him up the uh, his other the other deputies who were associated with him and all the people they can find in the municipal government who have been national you know been declared outlaws who have been in any way involved and about there's about a hundred of them over the next two days but for Robespierre and twenty two others a mixture of people deputies and, and municipal councillors they are taken to the um, to the Place de la Concorde as it now is. Uh, the place where the guillotine was set up for the execution of one tyrant, as they say, Louis the Sixteenth, and a second tyrant, a second would-be dictator, is executed there around six, between six and seven p.m. on the tenth of Thermidor. 
Let me ask you a question that a, a, a that political journalists love asking too much in 2021. Um, it's pretty clear that Maximilian Robespierre lost nine Thermidor. Who won the ninth of Thermidor? I mean, what what's and, and what I'm really getting at is is it, briefly what's the result of all this? Yeah, and I think it is a really important uh, question, and I, it's a question which. Um, my answer from the book is as is, uh, is follows, that it is the convention wins, that they have basically won over and defeated um, uh, Robespierre and uh, the forces of which he represents. Uh, but in a way which is very significant, by, for the first time in the revolution, a National Assembly acts in this way and basically militarizes itself. It's, a, it's the legislator on horseback, if you like, uh, who wins the day. But the other victor of the day, and I make this point really strongly because um, it's something which gets lost sight of, is the people of Paris. It was completely mm -hmm. unthinkable without the popular support which the, the, the people of Paris give to the convention. First of all, to check the mobilization that uh, Robespierre has and the Commune have organized, but then to counter-mobilize in a way to neutralize them and to lead to their arrest and their, their overthrow. And it needs saying because, in fact, it, the, it's, when you, you look over the next year, the popular cause loses out big time. Um, yes. Essentially, um, what happens is the, uh, within the National Convention, more right-wing forces become uh, prominent and essentially move against Paris, move against the people of uh, Paris, to, you know, remove municipal government, no mayor, no, uh, uh, no proper uh, uh, municipal services or anything like that, everything run from the national government. And the people of Paris uh, then find that they, the, many of the socially radical policies which the Robespierre has been associated with, although so his, his colleagues uh, the previous year, are removed, their conditions fall, there's... Uh, very bad winter in 1794, 95, near starvation, near famine conditions in, in Paris. And the people of Paris are essentially lose out over the next uh, next year. But without any doubt, the people of Paris win the day. Uh, but it's a Pyrrhic victory because it's a, a victory which turns against them over the next year uh, as, the, as the revolution moves right, moves to the right. Just just in the, the brief time we have left, um, the... Uh array of 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 personal perspectives in this book is just dizzying um it's kaleidoscopic um and i had a very dated uh, sort of fantasy as i was reading the book of colin jones with maybe uh, 30,000 three by five cards um <laughs> in a ballroom laying them all out trying to get them into the right order um so how did you actually uh, first of all, what are some of the sources you used? Um, you have some very interesting things to say about them. But then how did you organize this just as a as a discipline? I mean, there's some pro tips, I think, involved in, in how you put this together. Yeah, no, it was it was a certainly a, a chat. That's the biggest challenge, actually, is handling the data and working it into uh, narrativizing it. Uh, if yeah. you like, we're lucky, but, you know, it's just a luck which comes with a price that 
it's pro as I've said at other occasions, it's probably the best documented day in the 18th century, certainly the French Revolution, <laughs> partly because it is one of those light bulb moments like, you know, the assassination of Kennedy or maybe the 6th of January, which everyone remembers and everyone remembers where they were and everyone has a memory about it, who was there or who was involved in some ways, and it involves a lot of uh, people. But there's uh, waves of, uh, there's first of all an official inquiry into it, which is very, very detailed. Each of the neighborhoods, each of the 48 sections has to present at least two or three reports on exactly what went on over the day. And we still got those reports. And then lots of the people who are involved in it actually uh, uh, are, uh, are prosecuted for one re reason or another uh, for their involvement. And so we have enormous number of micro narratives of the day, if you like. And so putting those together and making a sort of general story is then the big, uh, the big uh, challenge. And really what I found is it's, it becomes a, a question of almost like grading. You know, there's a sort mm -hmm. of um, uh, a national convention story and then there's a uh, uh, hotel de ville story and then there's a national guard story. There's a prison story as well. I tried to make that a very important uh, aspect. You know, people are in prison. There's 7,000 prisoners. They're all wondering what the heck is going on as they, in the evening, they hear this mobilization and counter mobilization and they think they're all going to be massacred, actually. So it's, uh, it's interesting you said kaleidoscopic because that was my idea. I wanted to get a kaleidoscopic uh, sense of a Paris which is very multifaceted but at the end of the day produces collective uh, action of a really, really historic kind. Question. Yeah. How, so, but how did you put together all these voices and sort of get them in the well, right order? Quite did honestly, you, there were so many of them. It was, it was quite, that was something I learned a lot that I, 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 I had... Um, I really loved Hilary Mantel's uh, um, novel on the uh, French Revolution, on the terror just before the overthrow of Robespierre, the, A Place of Greater Safety. And she's such mm -hmm. a brilliant dialogist. And I thought that'd be wonderful if one could uh, have that sort of sense of uh, dialogue and everything. And when you actually go to the archives, you find there's lots of it. So, you know, all the dialogue in Hilary Mantel is made up, just about. Uh, all the dialogue in my book is actually recorded. You know, these are people saying, this is what I said on the day or, or other people saying what, what they said. So I looked for voices, really, and I looked for representative figures. And then, as I say, I tried to braid it together, saying, well, how does the time work out in the Hotel de Ville, in the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville, just outside the National Assembly? What's going on in, you know, perhaps an outlying commune uh, or outlying section? What's going on somewhere else, you know? And then tried to braid it together in a way which um, uh, respected the 24 hours. So, you know, the 24 hourly chapters, all roughly the same uh, length, but gave a sense of uh, movement around the city. Because I think movement, mobility of news, of people, of guns, of National Guardsmen is really the story of the day. Well, my guest has been Colin Jones. He's the author of The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary France. Colin Jones, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think, 
or on Facebook.